Welcome to the Jesus Never Ran podcast for those who think it's okay to believe differently and for those who believe that questions are not the enemy of progress. Hey, before we get going, a couple of words from our sponsors, Rise Nutrition. You can find them at Rise Menominee on Facebook. That's Rise with a Z. And they're all about a healthier, happier life. So let their wellness coaches give you the personal support to help you achieve your wellness goals. After all, that is their mission. And here's the thing, just for Jesus Never Ran listeners, if you go to their Facebook page, you can message them and get a free wellness profile. That's a 20-minute phone conversation, absolutely free for Jesus Never Ran listeners. So check them out today. Also, Infinity Beverages at www.infinitybeverages.com. They will deliver anything you need right to your door. And don't forget that Thursday is buy one, get one for club members if you're in the Eau Claire, Wisconsin area. That's Infinity Beverages at www.infinitybeverages.com. Happy holidays out there to all my fabulous walking friends listening today. Hey, a couple of quick things. If you're thinking about Christmas gifts, go to the show notes of this episode, and there's a direct link to some of the books by many of our guests on Jesus Never Ran. That might be a great little stocking stuffer. And if you click on that link, Jesus Never Ran gets a tiny little portion of those profits, which helps continue the work that we are doing to have these difficult conversations. Also, check out www.jesusneverran.com. Join the walking club to be part of the support system that, again, supports these conversations and everything we're doing at Jesus Never Ran. Today, I have on the show Donald Schmidt. Donald Schmidt is from Canada. He's written a study called The Birth of Jesus for Progressive Christians. As soon as I saw the title, I knew I had to talk to Donald because the reality is this. When you start questioning things about your faith, those questions just keep going. So when we get to a season like Advent and the Christmas season, there may be some things that come up that you think about even surrounding the story of the birth of Jesus. And that's exactly why I've got Donald Schmidt on the show today. With that being said, let me introduce you to Mr. Donald Schmidt. Well, I uh, was born in British Columbia, Canada. I was raised in a home that was part of the United Church of Canada, which is a Methodist Presbyterian Congregationalist combo. Largest Protestant church in Canada. Attended, uh, this piece I think is significant in my faith development, attended the Sunday school that was a joint operation of the United Church and the Anglican Church, which is like the Episcopal Church in the U.S. And we used the Anglican liturgy for children, which gave me a wonderful sense of liturgy, while at the same time the United Church had just come out with a curriculum that is known within Canadian circles as the new curriculum that challenged kids to think about the Bible, like not just take Bible stories and absorb them, but question them, challenge them and wonder about them. Starting at, you know, I, I mean, I'm doing this at like the age of eight. So that was, you know, that's a really great way to start your faith journey is with not just reading the Bible, but questioning it. I was ordained in the United States in the United Methodist Church. I took early retirement from the United Methodist Church and joined the United Church of Christ and served as a minister in that denomination. I've also worked for many years as an editor with a Sunday school curriculum called The Whole People of God, and have recently retired from parish ministry in the United Church of Canada again. 
I can't even imagine the benefit that there must be to growing up in an environment where you're encouraged to question the things that you're learning. What a crazy idea. <laughs> what a rogue thought. Ah, oh, that would have been amazing. I'm so glad that that even exists. That is phenomenal. Now, your books, many of them have progressive Christian in the title. So today we're going to talk about specifically a book called Christmas for Progressive Christians. Anytime a label is put on something, it makes a lot of us cringe a little bit because we've all been a part of something that's had a title or a label on it. And a lot of times that means we have to think or believe a certain way. So I understand the hesitancy that a lot of people have when we hear a label like progressive Christianity. So just to clear the air as we get going here, do you mind identifying in your words what you mean when you say progressive Christianity? Um, yeah, we've only got a half hour, right? Just kidding. Um, <laughs> and it's funny, I, I do understand that it's a difficult word. Uh, my publisher in Australia really wanted to consider retitling the books because progressive Christian is just not a term that works in Australia at all. And I've also run into groups in the US that have questioned it. For me, what I understand it as is those whose faith is alive as opposed to no longer moving. For example, there are people who are sort of like, okay, I know how much I want to believe. I don't want to add anything more to it. I don't want to do anything with it other than just coast, if you will. For me, a progressive Christian is someone who's constantly wondering. Each new situation makes them go, how does, how does the story of my faith, how does the story of my God relate to what's going on in my world? And do I have to rethink some of it now that this has changed or now that this angle has come in and, you know, all that kind of stuff? It does not mean we have to change. It just means we have to be open to wondering. So that's, that's how I understand progressive. I love that definition, first of all, because... I don't have to believe a certain thing to be a part of it. But secondly, is because I don't think our faith should ever be static. I think it should be forever moving. And one of the biggest problems I think we've had historically with the Christian faith is that we just say, this is how it is and this is how it's forever going to be. When honestly, most other groups in our world, at least that I can think of right now off the top of my head, they're willing to move and mold and change. Even scientists, for crying out loud, they'll believe something for years and years and years. More research is done, and they're willing to adjust the way that they think. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if God is alive, and of course God is alive, and if our faith is alive, and of course it ought to be, then there will be movement. <laughs> and movement means there will be change. Sometimes the change is just from the exterior. Sometimes it is from the interior and moves out. You know, sometimes I was saying just to, to a Bible study that I was leading yesterday on Zoom, and I, I would say, you know, every time I look at even a familiar passage of Scripture, if I'm doing it with the eyes of faith, I'm going to find something new in there. And sometimes that makes me go, oh, I got to rethink my faith now. <laughs> You know, not always, but often. And, and that's good. What would you say to the, what I would call a large group of people out there in this world of people of faith who would say it's not good? It's not good to question everything that we believe. And it is threatening the very foundation of what we believe in. My first reaction is that's sad because I think you miss out on an awful lot. 
And I think it's sad because that kind of faith to me, and I don't mean this, I do not mean this in a judgmental way. That kind of faith to me is very shallow. As an example, a piece that I've often used when I've talked and, and led groups, because I do challenge a lot of our understanding of the Bible, and there are people who are sort of like, you can't, you can't, it means this, and that's all it can mean. And I think my faith in God is so informed by the Bible, but it's not based on that. And if, if someone came up to me and said, we now have proof, I can show you that everything that the Bible says happened actually didn't happen at all, I'd go, oh okay, so I've lost the historic factuality behind a bunch of stories that have informed my faith. But my faith is in God (laughs) and in the living Christ, and I don't need the Bible or any of its components in order to know that I have a relationship with God through Christ. I sure appreciate it. It sure helps me, but I don't need it. That's not going to take away the piece that I know, and that is that there is a God who made me and loves me, and there is Christ that connects me with God. That piece can't go away. I could not agree any more with what you just said. I found myself in the middle of conversations where people are talking about whether there was a literal flood or whether it was figurative, whether it was a literal six days of creation or if that means something else. And when I'm in those spaces, I just find myself thinking, I don't think I care. I don't think this matters one bit in regards to my relationship with God. So I'm so thankful that I'm not the only person in the world that's thinking like this. I remember when I was a prison chaplain a number of years back, there was an inmate there. He was actually the choir director of our gospel choir that was in the prison. And I remember him telling me, he said, Chaplain, the most spiritual, God-loving person I know is my mother, and she's illiterate, and she's never read a single word out of the Bible, which just blew my mind. You know, that for him, the person that he knows that is the closest to God can't even read the Bible. Don't we believe that God is bigger than all of our inabilities? All right, let's get to what we are here to talk about. When it comes to Advent, when it comes to Christmas, what are some things that maybe we need to rethink or at least wonder about? Well, the first piece that I think we do, and very few people do this, whenever I lead a study on Christmas, we always have to spend a lot of time realizing that we don't know the biblical story. Very few Christians know the biblical story. They know this interesting story that we've created that's a hodgepodge of scripture and a lot of hymns and carols and a lot of pageants and a lot of Christmas cards and a lot of duck that isn't there. And I know people who struggle with pieces of the Christmas story because they've been told at some point by somebody, you have to believe this or else, and they just don't believe it. And I'm like, Boy, is that harmful, because that's not a key piece of the story. I mean, I'll use uh, just as an example. Um, I don't want to dwell on this one, but, you know, classic example. The virginity of Mary issue, which is different in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel to begin with. They don't even agree. Secondly, neither of them cares about it, (laughs) right? They don't start by saying, well, we need to establish that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a virgin and remained so, and if you don't believe that, don't bother reading anymore because you're going to hell. You know? And I'm like, wow, here we're trying to bring people into this amazing story about the birth of Christ, and you're stopping them before they come in and saying, well, picky detail, you've got to believe it or else. Matthew and Luke, which are primarily the Christmas stories, they're very different because they're trying to tell us different things. 
And so to read those and wonder, why are they telling us what they're telling us? Why does Matthew want us to understand these aspects? Why does Luke want us to understand these aspects? What are they telling us about who Jesus is? Because that's really their point. Their point is not Jesus was born. Their point is Jesus was born. I think we have to get that. It's one of the reasons why I love leading studies on this story and getting people to move beyond the stuff that isn't there so that we can get at what is, because what is there is so good. And I mean, the two stories, Matthew and Luke, there are a lot of pieces in there that don't quite match, and there's some historic evidence for parts of them, but definitely not for other parts. And I don't mind approaching it with the, with the reality that I don't know how much of it is factual and how much is not. But that doesn't matter either. Matthew, who, who always gets short shrift because it doesn't make a great pageant, right? To start a book with a genealogy is boring, I'm just saying. But Matthew tells us such a wonderful story. He gives us this genealogy that instead of just being a list of men, which all other biblical genealogies are, he puts women in there. And they're very sort of questionable women within the standards of the time. And I think, I think Matthew's doing that very intentionally because I think Matthew's saying, I'm going to tell you a story about somebody this guy called Jesus. I've got, you know, a whole story to tell you. And this guy is going to knock your socks off. And he's going to turn your world upside down. And, and so, the big clue to that is his genealogy, it's got all sorts of people that you wouldn't expect in it. And that's a way of telling you this guy is going to really be different. And then he gives us this story about Joseph realizing Mary's pregnant, wanting to get rid of her, and deciding to go against Scripture. We seldom play with this piece at all Christmas time. But here's Joseph deciding he's going to contradict Scripture that tells him he should kill Mary. And then God says, okay, it's all right, Joseph, don't panic. You know, as if God is waiting, going, are you willing sometimes to say there's Scripture and there's compassion, and if they're in conflict, go with compassion. That's a biblical story. It's right there. But, you know, instead, everybody wants to rush to, you know, having shepherds and angels. And they miss that incredible story that God is saying, sometimes you got to do this. Jesus is going to show you that. Oh, I really appreciate you grabbing that piece of the story, because honestly, I think a lot of us have had those moments where we've been prompted or felt like we should do something, but we also feel that maybe the Bible contradicts that. And then we find ourselves at this weird crossroads not knowing what to do but it's amazing to look at the biblical story of Jesus's birth and see that Joseph had a situation exactly like that and as you mentioned he chose compassion all right this is super fun what are some other areas what's another area that you want to grab from the story that maybe we need to rethink the piece that always amazes me and we get to blame the King James Bible for this because they mistranslated it it never talks about an in because there weren't inns. There were not hotels. People did not go to the Motel 6 in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. You know, it didn't exist. They're going to stay with family. They're going to the town of Joseph's family. They're obviously going to stay with family. And in fact, the Greek word says there was no room for them in the living space, which would be the main part of the house. So, they put Mary and Joseph in the shed, if you will. It's kind of the second room of the house, where there are undoubtedly some animals, there are also probably some other people. That's where all the kids would be sleeping. And that's where hired hands would be sleeping. So, Jesus is born in a room that would have normally been occupied by some rejected people, right? Children were not seen as being of, of much worth or value in those days. And certainly, the hired hands were lower, you know, were a step lower. 
And so here's Jesus being born amongst people right off the bat, people who are rejects, in quotation marks. You know, and, and if that doesn't bring it home enough, then an angel goes to shepherds who are also, big quotation marks, rejects, and says, I've got good news for you. <laughs> and Luke, Luke's story starts with this piece that Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the, you know, the prophet, however you want to understand him, first comes to the people who have been told they're not allowed to sit at the table. That's amazing <laughs> to me. You know, it's, it's sort of like the example I used because there was a, a picture recently of some people at a Black Lives Matter gathering outside of the White House. And it's as if God is coming, you know, down from heaven over the White House and everybody's thinking, well, of course he's going to the White House. The president lives there. But when God lands, God lands in the middle of a Black Lives Matter demonstration. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, the other guys in the palace are welcome, but we're going to start here in the ditch. We're going to start here where they've kicked you out. I fear that we miss that kind of piece in the story, and there's so many people who have been rejected, even by the church, who need to know, I think, that that primary story includes them first. So for those of you who feel displaced, feel out of place, have felt rejected by the church, by people who call themselves Christians, who maybe never felt like you fit in, this year, my hope is that as you hear or read or experience the Christmas story, the Jesus being born story, that you would see yourself as a central character. These stories that Matthew and Luke give us, and as, as I say, fact or not, I don't care. I really don't care. They're just such amazing stories. So to get us starting the Jesus story with the reality of Jesus has come for those who are on the outside, those who are pushed to the edges and we see that throughout the Jesus story. I mean, throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus reaching out to, to women, to children, to people who are cast out for all sorts of reasons, people who are pushed aside. Even the disciples are saying to him, you know, oh, ignore so-and-so, it's okay, ignore them. And Jesus is like, no, bring them in. This is what so much of the Gospel is about. And tragically, so many churches so many Christians, I'll, I'll give some of them the benefit of the doubt, they may have done it with good intentions, but they did a horrific thing by making people feel like they didn't belong. And I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't know that there's anything worse than that, than to tell somebody you don't have a place here. Why do you think it is, Donald, that here we are a couple thousand years beyond the life of Jesus? People have been reading the Bible, reading the story over and over and over, millions upon millions of times. Yet here we are a couple thousand years later, and a person could easily argue that a lot of people that call themselves Christians, a lot of churches, look a lot more like the Pharisees, excluding others, than like Jesus and his inclusive nature. I think as humans, we often want control. Not that we're always on a power trip, but I think we like to know that things are going to happen in an orderly fashion. And if they're not going to do that on their own, we like the opportunity to make them happen that way. <laughs> we seldom succeed, but we always try. And in order to do that, you end up putting in rules and walls. And it's very hard. I mean, even the most wonderful groups that try and resist that end up doing it. And I think the challenge for us as Christians, as much as is humanly possible, is to let go of that and let God be the controller <laughs> and the leader. And God's style of control and leadership is so different 
than what we as humans tend to want to lapse into. God's is always a, oh, hold on for a second, let's bring in some more. Oh, yeah, we're going to make a circle, but this circle is going to be really weirdly shaped because we have to include that person who can't get up and move over here. And we have to include this one, you know, and, and we're like, no, a circle has to be round, God. And God's like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> but we want to control. And I think that's, that's always the problem. And, in, you know, it happens in churches. It happens in every organization. Yeah, take like Martin Luther, for example. He's this radical, and some of the things he did were just, you know, crazy in a good way. And now we have the Lutheran Church that was really founded in his name, and it looks it looks an awful lot like the church that he broke away from, the Catholic Church, I'm not going to lie. And I think that's our challenge, right? Our challenge is simply that we can see what's wrong, we can see what we don't like, but it's really difficult to figure out then what that means for us moving forward because we tend to just repeat history over and over and over in different ways. And so I'm not so sure that the answer is that we just need a better form of church because my fear is that in forming it, it'll eventually just end up like everything that we were disenfranchised by. So Man, I don't know, Donald, I guess the question for you is, what do we do? Where do we go from here? I think a key thing we have to do is to listen, because every other person has a different idea than we do. And, and again, this comes back, I suppose, to the, the progressive piece that I was talking about, because it's very scary. If I listen to another person, I run the risk of their idea creeping into my brain and who knows what's going to happen next right if i don't listen to you for example you know i can leave this thing going well great i got to say what i believed unfortunately he didn't say a thing well what's the advantage of that you know i go away with my ego feeling like i got away with something but it doesn't do anybody any good so if we listen to each other i think we're far more open than to listening to the voice of god which often comes to us through others right? And through other people's ideas. When we honestly listen, listening with our hearts, not just our ears, I think there's the possibility of change, there's the possibility of movement. And when we resist that, we get stuck. And being stuck isn't inherently bad, but it doesn't do any good. Now, I know this doesn't apply to you, Donald, up there in Canada, but for all of us in the U.S., we just got done celebrating Thanksgiving, and it was definitely unique based on our current situation. And a lot of us didn't get the opportunity to celebrate like we're used to celebrating. And here we are just a week or two before Christmas, kind of feeling the same way. Here comes Christmas, and many, if not most of us, are not going to be able to celebrate it in the way that we're used to. So with that being said, how do we take a fresh approach to Christmas? I mean, everything you've shared today is just wonderful, fresh approaches to looking at the story of Jesus's birth. So why don't we take that in a little bit of a larger scope? How can we approach Christmas this year with the understanding of the very unique situation we're all in? Well, the easy answer is differently, um, because we know that. Um, I think what we need to do is look for, for different ways that we can do the things that matter, which does not mean the things that we've always had. For example, I'm used to gathering with family. I have um, a daughter and son-in-law and six grandchildren who live a few hours away, but they live in the United States. 
we cannot see them at Christmas. So I could sit here and go, well, isn't this horrible that these idiots have made it so that I can't cross the border and see my grandchildren? This is wrong. This is terrible. This has got to stop. Or I can go, okay, let's do a FaceTime. Let's maybe set the laptop on the table while we're eating dinner and they're eating dinner. And let's kind of share that moment, even though there's distance. I'm so, one of the things that I'm doing, I'm sending out way more Christmas cards this year than I've sent out for years. I've already had a few people email me back going, you know, it, it was so wonderful to receive a card from you because I'm stuck in my house. You know? um, phoning people, reaching out in, in different ways. Um, I know some friends who are not Christian, but have put up tons of Christmas decorations. Uh, visible to the outside, which was really kind of neat. Like it's not just stuff for themselves to see, to think, oh yeah, there's something different. But they really wanted people to drive by and see light and the hope that the light would give. And I thought, that's so cool, you know? I'm not crazy about an inflatable Grinch, for example, but I like the lights thing. And I, and I think that seeing that reminds us there's hope, and that's a big piece of what Christmas is about. So it's, it's doing some of those things rather than lamenting what we're missing. And, and I'm going to miss it. I know everyone's going to miss certain things. Through the grace of, of God and the grace of us of technology, we can bridge an awful lot of those things. This Christmas season is going to be filled with newness after this conversation, Donald. I'm definitely going to be reading through the gospel stories of Jesus' birth through a different lens and just seeing seeing what I can pick up because you've definitely piqued my interest. But then also, we're just going to have to celebrate in different ways. And different doesn't necessarily have to be bad. It's going to create a sense of newness. And who knows, maybe we'll even create some new meaningful traditions because of the reality of what we're all dealing with right now. And yeah, whenever we learn something new, we grow. And growing is always good. I'm convinced of it. Always good. Special thanks to Donald Schmidt for such an insightful and thought-provoking interview. I will put all of the links to his work in the show notes of this episode, so make sure you check those out. Of course, support this show by subscribing to it, giving it a five-star rating, and writing a review. Guys, next week, it's Christmas. So until then, keep walking.